Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the first third of every Parsha once again, because we're be beginning our triennial cycle again this year. So it's easy to find our place, right, in Parshat Vayeshev. We're right at the beginning. We are at the prologue to the Joseph novella. So the rest... Uh, <laughs> can we, can we, yeah, I know every word. Oh, I meant to bring my phone in to show you all that um, someone, one of my classmates from the Hebrew Academy found a picture of me uh, as a belly dancer in Pharaoh's court. <laughs> I'm not from surprised at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's reconstructionism right there. From when we did um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat in fourth grade. And so then we started, all my classmates who are on Facebook started this whole conversation about it. And one, one person said, you know, my mother said that's all we did in fourth grade was practice this and do this play. Um, but I know every word of the Joseph story as told on Broadway. <laughs> every word. So yes, I could sing the whole thing for you, Susan. I'm sure that's what you meant, was it? You'd like me to. Yeah, that's right. So from now till the end of Genesis, it is the story of Joseph. Joseph's story is a novella. It is a uh, kind of self-contained uh, unit. Uh, it is much longer and fuller than the, the other patriarchal narratives that we've had. You know, we get these vignettes, these scenes. Joseph is, is, a, is a story that is very well um, articulated. It's, you know, it's a much longer narrative. There are many traditions that uh, precede our Joseph story. One of them is the myth of the sacrificed son. So in the ancient Near East, you had this you know, tradition of both the hero tale, this is a hero tale, so we're going to get lots of classic elements of the hero tale here, um, but with other things layered on top, one of which is, as I said, the myth of the sacrificed son. Um, Joseph doesn't die, but like Yitzchak, we have this element of, you know, of sacrifice, of uh, a sword of death for Joseph. So, the, so our tradition has moved away from the sacrificed son actually being sacrificed, right? That our tradition has reconstructed those to have it be a figurative experience um, rather than the son actually dying. But this, it's been in the region for a really long time. It stays in the region and becomes what we see as the story of Jesus. Correct. The story of Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth, that teacher, becomes the sacrificed son. So that myth that's been around since before Torah stays in the region. It's popular. It continues in the region. It's a very powerful image. It's a very powerful story uh, and um, an experience mythically for people. And it, it gets wedded to the Jesus, the Jesus people and the Christ people, this, this idea about the death you know, and resurrection um, come together and you get Jesus as the Christ. Um, so it remains really powerful and it's powerful still today, right? And in the way that myth is. 
right? Because we go like, wait a minute, God so loved that God killed, wait, what? Right? So, because myth doesn't make any sense, right? It, it's not about logic. It's about the power of the stuff that is beneath the surface for all of us, right? And it, it remains a really powerful pull for people, this this story. So so keep that in your mind as we read uh, Joseph, right? This idea of the descent, right? And the, the loss before you have um, ascent and uh, transformation. There also seems to be a lot of passion behind this. I'm just thinking about mm-hmm. the really visceral, sometimes ugly feelings that mankind has. So, yeah, myth is driven by our strongest emotions, right? That, that's what's expressed in mythology, are our strongest emotions, both what we would call positive and negative, right? Courage, <laughs> bravery, sacrifice for a cause, um, as well as jealousy, revenge, right? Fear, like all those things that, that drive us. I think that's why mythology is so powerful, because that's what it speaks to for sure. All right. Who would like to begin reading? Now Jacob was settled in the land where his father had sojourned, the land of Canaan. This then is the line of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended the flocks with his brothers as a helper to the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. And Joseph brought bad reports of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph best of all his sons, for he was the child of his old age, and he had made him an ornamented tunic. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of his brothers, they hated him so that they could not speak a friendly word to him. Once Joseph had a dream which he told to his brothers, and they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream which I have dreamed. There there we were binding sheaves in the field, when suddenly my sheaf stood up and remained upright, while your sheaves gathered around and bowed low to my sheaf. His brothers answered, Do you mean to reign over us? Do you mean to rule over us? And they hated him even more for his talk and his dreams. He dreamed another dream and told it to his brother, saying, Look, I have had another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and brothers, his father berated him. What he said to him is this dream you have dreamed. Are we to come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow low to you on the ground? So his brothers were wrought up at him, and his father kept the matter in mind. All right. So do you see Bert Vayeshev? Now Jacob dwelt. Right? So it's past tense. That vav is to make it past tense. Vayeshev. Yaakov dwelled, right, uh, where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. This then is the line of Yaakov. So we're getting the introductory to the story. Eile toldot Yaakov. We see this a lot. This is, here's, we're now going to get the story of the generations of Yaakov. We've gotten Yaakov's story. Now we're going to get, right, the, the story of his descendants. And so, and it starts with our young Joseph. <laughs> he's 17 and he's tending flocks with his brothers. He's helping his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. Why he's not helping the sons of Leah, don't, don't know. Possibly there's enough enmity there. He's <laughs> Rachel's son, and maybe Leah's sons really hate him. Right? Why would they hate him? Why would Le- Leah's sons hate him more than somebody else? 
Because your mother was not the favorite mother. So, Leah and Rachel had a rivalry, and you know, so possibly it's easier with Bilhan Zilpa. Surely it's it's easy for him with his mother's maidservant, right? With Rachel's lifelong companion. Right. So maybe he was raised by Zilpa because Rachel died at his birth. Maybe at Benjamin's birth. Oh. Oh, right, so he's still young. I mean, he's still young. He still needs, uh, you know, a woman's care for sure. But uh, but it, she dies having Benjamin. So the and Joseph brought bad reports of them to their father. Right, so not a loving, you know, positive relationship already. Tattletale. He's a tattletale. He's 100% a tattletale. He doesn't have much emotional intelligence. No emotional intelligence here, right? A bit taken with himself. <laughs> yeah. But Yisrael Ahavit Yosef Mikobanov. And Israel loved... Hmm? Jacob? Israel. Yes, we had that last week. But they referred to Jacob in starting this... They're going to go back and forth. They use Yaakov and Yisrael interchangeably in this story. So Israel loves Joseph most of all of his sons. As soon as we hear that, that it's, it's dun, 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 right? Torah's <laughs> letting us know trouble's coming, right? Whenever, because what ha- we've seen this before. Torah knows we've seen this before, right? We Jacob loved Esau. I mean, yeah, thank you. Um, Esav and Yaakov, right? What the father loves, Esav, the mother loves Yaakov, and and it leads always to problems. Whenever there's favoritism, it leads to problems. That is not to say that there isn't natural favoritism. That's fine. When it's made really evident, it's always going to be a problem. And and. Torah and in life. Some things don't change. Some things are about right human nature. Some things are about just what happens to human beings with human beings. So so um, so when once we see Israel loves Joseph best of all of his sons, okay, we know there's gonna be trouble. He is the child of his old age. Uh, and then we learn that he makes him Ktonet Pasim. He makes him a an ornamented tunic. We have representations of this in the ancient world. This idea of a of a ornamented long garment. In the book of Samuel, this same ktonet pasim is used as the distinctive dress of virgin daughters of royalty. So ktonet pasim shows up in Samuel, and there it means the dress worn by virgin daughters of royalty. So that makes some sense. Yaakov is very wealthy, right? Think of him as a sheikh in the region. Mm-hmm. So his young unmarried son, right? So someone who's not attached to another household, right? It gets this ornamented, you know, tunic, right? So it is makes any, some sense. Is mm-hmm. there any relationship between that and all these descriptions later of the priests and their tunics and all that? I mean, I think definitely, I, you know, I, if I was doing a thesis <laughs> for a doctorate, let's just say, in Bible, which is never going to happen, and if, if it ever looks like it might, take me outside and beat me until I come to my senses, please. It would be about <laughs> it, would, it would be about clothing in Torah. I think there, I'm fascinated with how Torah uses 
garments and and adornment as a as it's as a storytelling device and it's loaded it's just loaded with meaning so i think we can't i think yes we have to say that this this garment and the later dressing of the priest in a special garment all dressing in special garments is NCT. NCT mm-hmm. and and Yaakov wearing Asaph's clothes, mm-hmm. his ritual clothes. I mean, it, it's just loaded. Um, and we're going to look at we, we can even look at some of those this morning with what we're going to see with Tamar with this. steal the cloak. And ta- Tamar dresses yeah. in a right. in something that makes her seem like a Kadesha, a sacred prostitute. So that foretold of how Jews would be tailors. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah's saying this foreshadows the fact that Jews will be tailors. <laughs> yes. What? Good one. Sacred prostitute? Yes. Isn't that an oxymoron? No. What is a sacred prostitute? An embodiment of the goddess through men have sex with her in order to achieve union with the goddess. Wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's speak the festal virgins. Um, right? So, and to be clear, there are, there are men who are embodiments of the god. Who, right? Who, who would do the same thing for uh, a priestess or, or women to to come close to the gods. So it was understood as what you do down here is mirrored in the high places. So if you want fertility for the crops, then right you you want you want to do here what you want the gods to do there. So in the pagan world it made perfect sense that that those things that bring fertility and procreation here, you do that with a representative of the god and it right it's how pagan religion works. Sir? I can divert us from this for a second. What? The pagan world. I'm curious, mm-hmm. when, when we look at this paragraph about dreams through our modern lens, you know, we, we have a vision of where that comes from, which is internal to self. Mm-hmm. But when, when this was written, uh, how was it viewed? Was it viewed that this was divine uh, inspiration, not just his hubris? Whatever going on. Uh, yes. So both. So it's a great question. The the cultural background in which in this story evolves does does have it that dreams are a communication from the divine. However, you can't separate the dreamer from the dream. So so yes, it might be communication from the god and how those dreams show up says something about the dreamer. So so in that case, it makes it doubly offensive to the brothers, right? Because it might be a communication from a god about Joseph's going to be some big shot, but the dream is, is it manifests in such a way that it says a lot about Joseph and who he is and his own, you know, his own um, raw desire for ascendancy, right? And... And he could have kept it to himself. And he could have kept it to himself, for sure. This goes back to Rita's point that the kid has no emotional intelligence. Yeah. Is, is Joseph a continuation of Jacob, of Israel? Do you think? I mean, it seems so natural that it flows from the story of Esau and Jacob. <coughs> you have Joseph who sort of antagonizes everybody just with his own arrogance or his own. 
sort of just follows. It, it's interesting the ways he is the son of his father and the ways that he's the, the way that this story is different. So in to the dream thing, bless you. All the dreams that we've seen that are divine communications till now, including to Jacob, have been a straightforward message from God to the dreamer. God speaks the message to the dreamer. This is not that. God is nowhere here that we know of. We're not told. And God said to Jacob, your brothers shall serve you. Right? We, we don't get any of that here. So there's no God here. He doesn't see God. There's no God never appears to Joseph. Never. So it's more like a prophet, more like a seer. Because he's seeing into the future. So definitely so it's got those elements of a seer, of magic that we know from this you know dream interpretation right you know and and the ability to to see what the future holds for sure there are all of those elements of this it's fascinating that god does not speak to joseph so on the one hand he has dreams like his father right he antagonizes people like jacob antagonized asa or you know like was not terribly nice to asa um so those there's the ways they're parallel and the ways they're very different he never builds an altar he never gets the promise. He never says, I'm going to, you know, you're going to, he's not the next in line in terms of being, the, and he's not a patriarch. Notice. He's not a patriarch. We don't even count him in the tribes. Mm-hmm. Right? When we when we look at territory. It's not like there's, you know, Yusachar, Zvulun, and Yosef. So Yosef is both a continuation and a real break from how we've seen this family operate, especially vis-a-vis God. What else did I want to say about that? Um, So to to your point, Robert, my notes say, however, since the dream was also recognized to be inseparable from the personality of the dreamer, reflecting his own needs and wishes, Joseph bore in the eyes of his brother a measure of responsibility for his highly egocentric vision of superiority and lordship. Joseph's aspirations raised such hostility in his brothers as to inspire a conspiracy to murder. So that both the power of dreams and how they were treated and you wed that to it saying something about Joseph and his arrogance and the brothers are livid. And had this not happened, ostensibly, Joseph never would have ended up in Egypt. Correct. He wouldn't have gotten taken away. Well, <laughs> he may have gone to his brothers later. But this is like the beginning of that whole story 100%. that unravels. Hundred percent. Well, and and the people would not have been saved. Correct. Had he not? Had he not? Been Correct. And that and that's what we're going to see at the end of the story. So that's Joseph at the end of the story, but right? Foresight for the same. He had dreams there that that made him figure out the feast and the famine years. Correct. It's sort of fascinating because that's the way the Jacob story ends at the end when Esau reconciles with Jacob. And they come together. And now with Joseph at the end, he's going to save his people, the same people. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely common right, elements, common themes. Um, Is this the writing thing, the way the work was written <coughs> in, in this time? I mean, was it that if you were casting a story, you would have villains and heroes? Yes. Reconciliation. There's a there are there are themes and patterns that have been in place for a very long time, yeah. and then it's what each culture, what each yeah. generation 
does to reconstruct that story slightly to preach a message and to teach a lesson, right? Um, or to just describe what happens in the world. His behavior is so insufferable that even his father has to rebuke him. Right? So Ruben points out a good point. Like, even Yaakov, who loves his son, who favors this son, is like, he can't, right? It's like, really? Really. So what, what are you saying? You're going to, and it's interesting here because he says, um, in this dream you have dreamed, are we to come, I and your mother? Her, his mother's dead. So that's very interesting. Either it's a variant tradition that has Rachel dying later, or he's evoking her memory, you know, to say, so in your dream, were I and your mother bowing down to you also? Right? You know, um, but, right, so he's, He's just as insulted in some ways by by Yosef's arrogance. Right. Right. So it gets his brothers, you have to love some of these English translations, wrought up at him. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just makes no sense. But I mean, I mean, I'm sure it does to the people who have the lovely English who translate it. But it's not. It's This is Kana. This is El Kana, a jealous God. Right? This is that word. This is not wrought up. They're jealous. They're, but jealousy that's about rage, right? Jealousy that when God is jealous, it's not because God is like, you like another God better than me. That, that's not God. When God is jealous, God has a right to wrathful indignation that jealousy in this case is not an emotion. This is, I have a right to your exclusive relationship with me and if you abrogate that you deserve what comes which is going to be my justified rage right um, so they, so it's a much stronger sense it's a much stronger word they are they are jealous in a way that is but but in this case like really ugly like really really ugly are you saying that in this in this story, God is jealous? No, no, sorry. No, Th- I'm saying that this word, mm-hmm. wrought up, um, really com- comes from the same word that we see. It comes from jealous. Vayikanu, yeah. it's kana. And when we see kana, it means jealousy. Right? Kufnun. Is it Aleph or Ayan? I can't spell in English. And so I have no chance of spelling in Hebrew. Um, so Kuf Nun Aleph, right, is about jealous. And we see this term used of God other places. That God is a jealous God. You've heard this, yes? The Maybe? Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. I am a jealous God. It doesn't mean that God has a self-image problem, <laughs> right, and is in competition for somebody's favor, right? It is... A ju- it's a legal right in in God's case. Same with a husband, right? You, you have you have a right to hold people accountable to an exclusive relationship. In certain cases, God has that right. And when Israel worships other gods, it stirs God to kinah, to jealousy that is about I had an exclusive right to your worship, and you broke that. You stepped out of the deal. That's the kind of jealousy it means. And then you are punished. God is enraged, right? Because you have betrayed the relationship. So it's a much deeper 
you know, emotion than wrought up tends to evoke <laughs> for me. All right, so let's. So that's where we are. So Yaakov is aware, right, that this is going on with his son, and the brothers are livid at this point. Why did it say his father kept that in mind? It's interesting because if he had, if he was keeping it in mind, you would think Jacob would have made some different decisions mm-hmm. than the ones he makes coming up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the Hebrew is just saying he noticed it or he thought about it or what? Um, it's just a strange English phrase. The Aviv and their father Shamar etadavar, Shamar, right? He keeps, observes, guards the thing. Yeah, I had the same question as uh, as Burgess had because there, in my mind, there's a couple of things he could have been kept keeping in mind. The obvious one is, uh oh, they hate him and bad things could happen. But the other one is. Gee, he had this dream. Maybe it really is going to come true. Mm-hmm. So we're not sure what he's keeping in mind. That, that is my reading of it. Uh, and as a matter of fact, they do end up bowing down <laughs> to him. Right. So, so what? So what's the davar that Yaakov is keeping in mind? Yeah, right. What's the thing he's keeping in mind? Is it Yosef's behavior? Is it the dreams he's had? Is it the brothers' reactions? <laughs> yeah. Where's but in this sentence? Uh, Where's but? Well, his brothers detested him, but his father kept the matter in mind. But See, wait, yeah, you have to remember, and or but, it's above. So it can be translated and or but. Right. So that vav can be conjunctive or disjunctive. But the but edged to the confusion. Unless you translate it and, yes. right? You know, so so in Bert saying in his translation it says and. So sometimes but helps. Sometimes, but sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, There's some more there. It, it, it could be. <laughs> Don't quit my day job, right? Could it also mean that he he kept it in his mind, but he didn't talk about it? We we just know that we're told he takes. He takes note, right? Of Got what? It. We don't know. Right. We don't know. All right. So at verse 12. One time when his brothers had gone to pasture their father's flock at Shechem, Israel said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing at Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. He answered, I am ready. And he said to him, go and see how your brothers are and how the flocks are faring and bring me back word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. All right. So one time his brothers had gone to pasture their flocks at Shechem. You have to move around. You have to move flocks around to where the grass is, to where food is. So sometimes it's a good journey. If it's, you know, in a time of year where there's not a lot of grass, you have to go where it is. And um, so tell me about Shechem. Or not. <laughs> what happened at Shechem? Okay, I'm going to give you a hint. Dina. Dina. And the brothers. Yes. My Torah scholar. <laughs> right? So Dina is, we're not sure, but she... She has sex out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. We're not sure if she's raped. If it's consensual, we don't know. This is their sister, mm-hmm. Dina. And they tell, the brothers tell 
Shem, the one who slept with their sister, and the town is named for him. He was a ruler of the t- he was the son of the ruler of the town. Get yourself circumcised. We can't give you our daughter. And he wants the daughter in marriage. He wants Dina in marriage. We can't give you any daughters of Israel in marriage unless you circumcise yourselves. The entire town circumcised themselves. And then what happens on day three, the most painful day? They invade. The brothers invade and slaughter everyone in the town. All right. Just like the father, that's kind of misleading. Just saying. (laughs) Just saying. Right? They're their father's kids. (laughs) Right? So we have to know that when we read one time when his brothers had gone to pasture their flocks at Shechem. Hello? Like, that is is a scene of a bloody, horrible incident. Possibly after they slaughter everyone in the town, they own Shechem. Like, they... They have a right to come and go. Maybe once the next generation, you know, once other folks start to recover, another maybe they're never allowed near the town again. But in any case, it's loaded are that they, this is Shechem. Are they more ruthless than most of the people around, or is this kind of common way of doing things in those days? It, it would have been fairly common. I don't think they're any more violent than anybody else. But then they plotted to kill their brother. Well. But but Dina possibly was raped. I mean, you don't you know you don't walk around because you don't you don't know what can happen, right? So um, so violence, you know. That wasn't that that was normal too. Yes, yes, that's my point. Dina was their sister. She's the one who's attacked by these people in in Shechem, right? By Shechem. So um, I mean, in one version, in one version, she's attacked. It, we're not. It's not clear. The text is not clear whether or not it was consensual. And in the red tent, it's a love story. Of course, of course, so, of course. But it, it 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 seems that it is linked to the revenge killings that are current in in Islamic societies today. Well, not just Islamic societies. All kinds of traditional societies, right? Because because this and that is this mindset that has a. It's been there forever. It's gonna be there forever, unfortunately. But that. That the pride of the family is tied up, which is why they attack because of Dina, because it has ruined their father's honor. Mm-hmm. That's why they murder everybody in Shechem, not because of Dina. It's because the taking of Dina's virginity right. soiled his only daughter, right? It soils Yaakov's honor that he wasn't able to protect his daughter. And they, she's got 12 brothers. I don't think it mattered to the brothers whether it was rape or not. Correct. It doesn't matter. Correct. It does not matter to the brothers whether it's rape. She had no right to make a decision about her virginity. She did not. She does not own the rights to her sexuality. Jacob owns the rights to her sexuality until she's married. Then the husband owns it. Right. So she didn't. She doesn't have the right to make a decision about her virginity. Um, that wasn't. She. She stole also from Yaakov if it was consensual. Not quite like that anymore. It's really just not quite, but it's amazing how still there is the sense of you know. She was not stoned to death. Um, she was not stoned to death, but it's there's a lot of technical reasons. So what does this say about Yaakov or Israel that he kept it in mind, you know, what the dreams were, and then right after that he's sending the same person out to brothers that he know. 
So, so that is one argument for that's not what he kept in mind. Mm-hmm. One argument for what he kept in mind was the dream, but it has nothing to do with the brothers necessarily. Because wait, wait, if what he's keeping in mind is the brothers' reaction, you would think he's an idiot here for sending Joseph alone. Right? So that's one argument for saying that's not what he meant. It meant you know keeping the the dream in mind, right? But but in any case, it seems. Naive at best and a little twisted at worst that Yaakov's sending Yosef now. So, where are we? <laughs> so, what? So, right, Shechem. So, he pastures there, Shechem, and Israel says to Joseph, Your brothers are pastoring in Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. And what does Joseph answer? Here I am. What, what's the Hebrew? Come on. Come on. Of course. Of course. Hineni. That right there is right. Hineni? Come on. That's what Abraham says. That's what Abraham says. That's what you know, Isaac says. That's what I mean. This Hineni is the big one. It means it's a trigger word. Joseph knows something's up, right? You know, he. Here, I'll send you to your brothers in Shechem. Right? And Yosef says, Hineni, I'm prepared. I'm ready. But it, you don't say that to go to the grocery store, Hineni. Right? You know, it's, he know, this is a dangerous... He knows something. He, it's, it's dangerous. He knows this is loaded. Um, so he answers Hineni, which is always the right answer. Uh, and he said to him, go and see how your brothers are. And, and generally, what kind of reports does Joseph bring Jacob Bad about ones. how his brothers are? Bad ones, right? So now Jacob's sending his son to go spy on the brothers far away after he's already told these dreams. It just, right, it's... He's asking him about their shalom. Uh-huh. Yeah, which is normal language for um, how are they. Um, that's why you say in Hebrew mashlamcha. You're saying how is your shalom? We still say that to each other in Hebrew mashlamcha, mashlamech. Tell me about your shalom. That's how you greet each other. Huh? It is like how you doing. It's like how you doing. So he well, wants has, to see how they're doing. Roots a lot deeper with the word shalom. It's not just how you do. I don't know. I mean, it is. It's, it's an interesting yeah, question. Way, but, yeah. but, um, but here it seems to be just how we use it. Go see how they're doing. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. Right? So he sends him. Go. And uh, Did we get to this part yet? No. 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 Okay, go Not ahead. Ish again. Oh, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> when he reached Ham, a man came upon him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, what are you looking for? He answered, I'm looking for my brothers. Could you tell me where they are pasturing? The man said, they've gone from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers and found them at Dothan. Okay. So when he gets to Shechem, he's wandering around and he is met by an ish. <laughs> for that same ish that's wherever. Just saying. Of course. He's by himself. It's dangerous. And he's met by an ish. Right? This, this is what happens in this family. <laughs> right? That you're wandering around alone, things are a little scary, and you meet an ish. 
And that confrontation with that ish, that person, that man, is always going to be a profound life change. Life change. Something's going to happen, right? So, but you could read right past this and go, oh, but it doesn't happen here, right? But um, he the, with the man asks him, what are you looking for, right? Yosef answers, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are pasturing? And the man said, they have gone from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dotan. How does he know who his brothers are? <laughs> right? So we read right over it like, oh, well, the big ish thing doesn't happen here. But how does this ish know who... Joseph's brothers are to say I overheard them talking. There's a lot of men pastoring flocks, right? There's a lot of people wandering around. Like, really? Like, so, so I think we do have the element of the ish here that is life changing. Because if that ish had not have been there, what would have happened? <laughs> right? And if the ish hadn't said, oh yeah, I overheard them talking, they went that way. And he believed them. Right, and Peter Pizzola, the you know the wonderful bibliodramatist, uh, he does psychodrama, bibliodrama. You know, he he had us do a whole scene here with this. Like, who is this Ish? And and that there's always an Ish in our lives, right? And so we talked about who who in our lives have been this Ish that says one thing. And your whole story turns. And you don't know it at the time. But looking back, had that teacher not said whatever to me, right? I don't know. I'm sure I would not be here doing this, right? Had this person not done X or said X or intervened in <coughs> X way, I, my whole life would have been different. But, but don't... Don't we call that destiny or master plan? I mean, the Ish sent him where he would go so he would get what he got, so he would end up where he ended up, so he would, you know, help his his family in that end. So I think some people would say, yes, that's destiny. That's the master plan. Other people would say... Serendipity. Serendipity. It's, you know, a happy confluence of... Or in this case, no, not so happy. But later it is, right? So I mean, it's just it's just the fact that we have every one of us an ish or an isha, right? <laughs> that says or does something that turns the whole business. Had my had my great aunt not said to my birth mother don't go to an agency my son has been waiting to adopt I would not be standing in this room teaching you Torah right now I wouldn't be Jewish there's right there and I'm not saying it's just one but there it's a wonderful device that we overlook sometimes right what happens in this moment it's that one statement that changes everything uh, you can uh ignore this paragraph and it wouldn't hurt the continuity of the story so you have to ask why is this here mm-hmm. right it doesn't seem necessary <coughs> but but we know it's necessary <laughs> because right we know that ish or isha is always necessary 
for our story to unfold. Yeah, of course. That's what happens in this family. You're, you're wandering around by yourself. Things are scary, and Ish is going to come, and there's going to be not the same guy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And have his name in here. <laughs> Could be the same Ish. His name was Ish. And I'm sure that there's a midrash that says this is the guardian angel of this family, right? You know, I'm sure somewhere there's a midrash that it's the same Ish. <laughs> this Ish follows them around. Well, there's a, there's a note here that Maimonides considered the Ish to be an angel. Oh, well, of course. And if if you look at a lot of this story as an answer to the question, where do we come from? Then it all falls into place because it takes all these stories. And you see kind of like the hand of God, as it were, beneath all of it. That just just when, just when it was not going to happen. Right. So for the faithful, yeah, absolutely. Right, right. Just, just, just when he was going to go there and they weren't there, so he'd go home and he had not seen them, and so they wouldn't have tried to kill him and take him to Egypt. Just when that something intervenes, we don't know why. Right. So that's how Faith. the faithful read this, yeah. as well as the Megillah Esther. God does not appear in the Megillah either of Esther. But in the back, right. But if you're a person of faith, of course it's God in the background. How? What else could be working here? Um, so, but Robert, to, to your original question, there's there's another set of interpretations that say the brothers hid their reactions from Jacob, and so he didn't know, right? Some interpreters want to say Jacob didn't know that they hated their brother. Like as much as they did, and that that's why he sends them. Now, I don't know that I buy it, but um, because he is sending his son kind of into the storm. Hundred percent. All right. So, which is why the only way it made sense to me was he just knew this was the way it had to go, just like his wife knew who who had to be the, the, you know it had to be Jacob, who was the one. Her, his mother. Mother, sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah, right. But this is written after the fact. It's easy to go for each of us to go back and say, "Oh, there was this <laughs> incident. I remember, and that's why my life turned that way." And these writers are writing it after the fact. After too. the fact of what? Of the events. What event? <laughs> None of the same. <laughs> it's all made up. <laughs> Mythic event. There's, it's really great. There's no event. There's no right. This is a. This is a. So you ha- you have to put this in here. If you're writing a good story, yeah. I mean, for, to Ruben's point, it's not necessary for the plot, but it's if you want a good myth, you gotta have an ish. <laughs> you gotta have that moment because we—that's that's why it's important. It's, do you see what I'm saying? Why I'm harping on it? The event. There is no event. There is no Joseph. He's a myth, and and powerful mythology is always describing what actually happens. So all of us look back on our story, and there's an ish. And so the myth has to have an each, because all of us live with the consequences of that one sentence that changed our lives, you know, or the seven sentences at different times that changed, right? And so, of course, it has to, to be here. I think it's hard to believe that Jacob did not realize the impact of how the sons felt about it, because he himself experience that in his own relationship with his brother. So then Robert so, says, then the only reason you can forgive Jacob for doing what he does then is because he knows this is how it's supposed to unfold. Do you agree with that? I don't agree that... No, Elena doesn't. I don't agree with that, but I think he's propelled by something that he 
he sends him out. You don't Please. always expect violence just because there's hatred. <laughs> well, <laughs> you might worry about it. <laughs> you don't always expect violence just because. So you're saying it's unthinkable to Jacob that his sons would act on right. how they feel. The so it's just unthinkable to him. We're the ones who slaughtered everybody in Shechem. Right? The ones who just slaughtered everybody. Right. The brothers who slaughtered all the men of Shechem wouldn't hurt Jacob. I wouldn't hurt Joseph. I think... Uh, we Obviously, we don't know. Obviously, we can't know. I think this is, for me, another black mark against Jacob. Because he's asking Joseph to go tattle or, or go bring reports about his brothers that many days it just it just sets things up in a way that's ugly and it's just another place to me that Jacob is completely self-absorbed and completely um, he doesn't respond to Dina's rape at all right he's just worried about he says to the brothers you're gonna get us in trouble in the in the neighborhood that's all he cares about right there's a there's a part of Jacob that is really to me a narcissist and he's an idiot in terms of the consequences of his is, actions. Is the darker side of this, the real dark side that Jacob's setting this up, knowing with his brothers? That would be really dark. <laughs> All right. That, that's really dark. And you're going to take care of him because you guys are like Esau. You, hunt, you do things that are productive. Joseph just stands around in a coat or he's... <laughs> <laughs> but he, but what we know is that he loves him more than any of the other sons. This is the this is the son of his beloved Rachel, and like I. turning on. Literally, just turned on Joseph. But I, I mean, I find that hard to believe. But we, who knows? But I, I find it hard to believe. He's he's devastated. He's devastated when they bring him that coat. He's devastated that something's happened, and then doesn't let, doesn't want them to take Benjamin after that because he's like, after what happened to Joseph, if something happens to Benjamin, it'll kill me. Like I can't, I can't suffer another loss. Maybe maybe Jacob is is like thinking about that dream and the vision of of Joseph being greater than, and he's testing the dream. So that's Robert's argument that this has to happen. Something has to happen in order for those dreams. For for something's got to happen, and so it's kind of embracing that things are going to happen. Let's see. Well, to, to your point that uh, you're really upset by this behavior of Jacob, but this is consistent with uh, with the way these myths have been written about our patriarchs. They're always flawed. flawed. 100%. Always flawed. It's really interesting because I don't know that that's usual in Bless the pantheon of, of, of stories, uh, you know, of the creation of face that you have such flawed um, key figures. Right. It's both the blessing and the challenge. Of yeah. right, it, the blessing is wow. Thank God we don't have to try to be perfect because even our right. heroes aren't. Um, add this to the list. Right, and, and add this to the list of things you don't want to emulate in your family. Right, like I always say to people, people who want to like say talk about family values being biblical. I'm like, really, <laughs> really? You want to talk to me about marriage and the Bible? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's have that conversation. Turn to 37 verse 20. Let's let's have that conversation, shall we? Like, right? Because 
This is none of these are the marriages you want. None of these are the familial relationships you want. None of these are the parent-child relationships you want. Right? Manasha and Ephraim are the first time we have brothers who don't fight and hate each other or try to kill each other or whatever. Ephraim and Manasseh, the end of the book of Genesis. This is why we bless our sons. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. We don't say anybody else. We don't say may God make you like Jacob or Cain and Abel. May God make you like, you know, Isaac, the Nebuchadnezzar, Yeshiva, Bukhar. We don't, we, we don't, right? We say to our girls, may God make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, the matriarchs. We don't bless our sons. May you be like the patriarchs, <laughs> right? May you be like the great-grandchildren of the patriarchs who finally seem to get it together, who aren't Jewish, by the way, right? They are the children of Joseph, who doesn't even even call Joseph at the end of the story. He takes an Egyptian name, and he marries an Egyptian noble, uh, the daughter of the high priest, and their children have Egyptian, like they're Egyptian. So, right, the, these are the people we tell our sons we want you to be like. So this is they weren't a, even bar mitzvah, <laughs> right? They, they did not have a bar mitzvah. I can assure you of that. All right, you want to go on? But they saw him from afar. And before he came close to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we can say, a savage beast devoured him. We shall see what comes of his dreams. But when Ruvain heard it, he tried to save him from them. He said, let us not take his life. And Ruvain went on, shed no blood, cast him into that pit out in the wilderness, but do not touch him yourselves intending to save him from them and restore him to his father. When Joseph came upon his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, the ornamented tunic that he was wearing, and took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Go on. Then they sat down to a meal. <laughs> Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, their camels bearing gum bomb and... Uh, Ladanum, to be taken to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain by killing our brother and covering up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let us not do away with him ourselves. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph up out of the pit. They sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who brought Joseph to Egypt. Okay. So this to me is like a really distressing <laughs> scene. This is really distressing, right? So they see him coming, and before he gets close, they decide, right? They're like, okay, here comes the jerk, right? Um, right? And let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. So the, these pits are like, they are, they are very deep cisterns made to catch the winter rains and the flash flooding. When there's flash flooding, you catch it in these huge cisterns hewn into the rock. So as the water comes rushing down, it fills the cistern. Um, they would have been plaster covered, right? The walls would have been plaster covered. So um, they were very deep. Um, this is the same thing when you watch The Sopranos. This is you know, them by a quarry 
Mm-hmm. Right? When you see Tony Soprano pull up with his buddies in a car at a quarry, <laughs> what's going to happen? <coughs> right? They're not going for a swim. They're not going for a swim. Yeah. Right? It's where you got rid of the body. So in the ancient world, if you were going to kill somebody, you got rid of the body in a cistern. Because who, who's going to look at the bottom of a cistern? Right? No one's going to look for you there. So this is not just a pit. This is a... This is bad, right? This is all the way down. Um, how did they get him out of there? Hmm? If it's really, really deep, then how did they get him out of there? We're not told. Right, but it's... Presumably he can't get out himself. You know, they have to pull him out. They have to lower a rope. They lower... Who knows? But it's something that they throw him in because they know he can't get out. So they throw him in, and then they sit down... To a meal. To a meal at the edge of the pit. And it gets worse. Again, all this stuff we we read right over, right? Reuben says, like, let's not take his life. Let's not shed any blood. Like, maybe just leave him here to die, but we can't actually kill him. And But it says, intending to save him from them and restore him to his father. So Reuben is saying, let's just leave him here and is planning to circle back later and get him and take him home without the brothers knowing. When Joseph came up to his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, right? They took him and cast him into the pit. And then... More clothes. Then they sat down to a meal. More clothes. They didn't have to strip them. They sat down to a meal. Looking up, they saw a caravan. And then Judah said to us, now Judah speaks. What do we gain by killing him? Let us profit, right? Let us sell him. But let us not kill him ourselves. After all, right, it's our it's our brother. Um, so, so Reuben, right, right. So Reuben and Judah, right, each of them try in their own way, right, to save him. They do save him from the brothers who actually want to kill him. Um, Is there any correlation between Judah and Judas? No. Not that I know of. But I'm not a, you know, I'm not a scholar of New Testament literature, but... um, so they, I was looking for this one sentence. All right, so presumably they are sitting by the pit and presumably, he, I can't imagine Joseph is just like, well, okay, I'll just wait till y'all decide what you want to do. Like, presumably Joseph is begging, right? Let me out. What are you, please don't do this. You don't want to do this. Why would you do this? And they're, Eating. eating right and and having this conversation about about killing him um, or leaving him to die or what and so um, at that moment I have to believe that is a that is a serious change for Joseph forever right that is he's been betrayed in the worst possible way right meaning like um, his more you know what do you call it? mortally betrayed right that it's going to mean his death and even though it doesn't wind up meaning his death they were ready to go there 10 out of or 9 out of the 11 were ready to go there or Benjamin's not there so the 8 out of the 10 of them were ready to go there to kill him 
Only two brothers argue against killing him. But these are the same guys that just killed a, a, a town. Correct. Men, women, and children. But what do we always... First of all, I don't know who was women and children. Second of all, what do we always say when... I mean, if you live in a, a violent society, there are rules. And even though, yes, they were murderous with the people of Shechem... Certainly, Joseph would have said, but they would never do that to me. They would never do that to their own flesh and blood. Never. Elena totally believes that. That Jacob can't even imagine that they would do this. However murderous they are, there are limits. However mean people are, there are limits on who they will do that to and and who they won't. Right? And that um, it's Even in a violent society, I guess my point is, this would be considered horrific. Fratricide, right, is just wrong. It's just bad. I don't care how acceptable violence is as an answer. It, it just, it's just wrong um, on so many levels. So for, for and I'm not, I'm not preaching about it. I'm saying, imagine Joseph in this moment. That what he's just learned about his brothers what he's just learned about who they really are, about their capacity for violence and murder and betrayal and what it, what it would do to their father. I mean, just that, that they are that consumed, you know, with whatever that they would do this is, I mean, it just has to be the most horrible, horrible moment. Um, not just because he's in mortal danger. I mean, I, I I get that. I guess what I'm trying to say is, for me, it's even it's even worse just thinking about psychologically for Yosef what happens in this moment, right? It's like that they would do this to him, um, however angry they are. Does he overhear Reuben and Judah? So that is a very interesting question. Does he overhear Reuben and Judah? And does that stay with him? And in what way? So that later... When he has control of all this Egyptian wealth, he can think of meeting his brothers again. So hold that set of questions for as we progress into the story, when we get there. Because I, I often have a lot of questions when I get to the end of the story. Mm-hmm. About, he had all this wealth, he could have sent for his father. He had all this wealth. He could have set up a meeting with his brothers. He doesn't do that. Right? It, it, it's a glaring... I mean, it's a glaring um, absence to me that he never does that. It's only when they come to him that the whole thing starts. He never told his father he's alive. What kind of a son does that? Is it because this moment breaks him in a way that he is done with the whole family? Does he blame Jacob in this moment for how could he have sent me out here to this? <coughs> really? Dad, not great parenting, right? I mean, we've all had those moments of how could my father, how could my mother let that happen to me? Why weren't they watching me more carefully? Or what happened that they didn't see that coming, right? And 
is that why? But it, it stays with me that what what does he take as he climbs, you know, the the Egyptian ladder of wealth and power? What is going on for him about his family well, origin? And he's silent here. He totally he doesn't say anything. Totally silent. Well, they're doing all this. Here he is, but when we get to the end, he does say it had to be this way. Right, but that has nothing to do with why he oh, couldn't have reached out to Jacob 20 years earlier. That's true. <laughs> he's going, there's seven years of bumper crops. 14 years he's living in Egypt as the vizier of Egypt and never once, even in Potiphar's house. He was powerful in Potiphar's house. How come he didn't send a telegram? He never, never called, called, he never right. wrote. Right. Right. right? He could have reached out way sooner just to say to Jacob, I'm okay. He was busy. And I've got... He was busy. <laughs> Isn't that what they always say? Too busy. I'm so busy. You're so busy. You can't call. You don't have five minutes to call? You're so busy. Look. Look who's a big shot. Look who's a vizier of Egypt, a big shot. All right. Um, we're going to quickly look at... Um, 100%. I think Joseph is deeply flawed. And I think... Again... He's the father of his son. He's the son of his father. Right. So go to page 211 on your handout. This is Peter Pizzola from his book, Our Father's Wells. So page 211, right under the italics. Two things here would raise the hair on the back of young Joseph's neck. The first, that he's being sent away from his father's protection alone to find his brothers, whom we know must hate and envy him. And second, that the place he's being sent to is Shechem, where these same brothers killed and plundered an entire tribe, quote, for Dina's sake. He goes. He does not find them where he was told they would be. A man in a field meets him. He asks Joseph, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replies, and the man points him on his way. Joseph goes north. And from afar, his brothers see him approaching. They're, and then we know what happens there. Go down to, they strip him of his hated cloak, which they dip in the blood of a slaughtered goat. And then they sell him to a passing caravan of Ishmaelites who bear the boy as booty to Egypt. The brothers return home with the blood-stained cloak and show it to old Jacob, who concludes that Joseph must have been killed by a wild animal. Jacob grieves inconsolably. So they have taken his coat, they dip it in the blood of a goat. This, right, this is the sacrificial son, right? Here are the elements. They have to, they sacrifice a goat. It's a dip the coat in the blood, right? And then they take it to Yaakov. So we have the element of, of the sacrifice, right? But here it's a goat. Where else do we see this? We see this with Isaac. And what is it there? Nope. It's a ram. It's a ram caught in the thicket, right, that is sacrificed instead of Isaac. So here are the elements of the sacrificial son and the sacrifice that steps in for the son. And the term goat is <coughs> come down generations that you Games. use for, against someone who, who you, 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 you qualify somebody who's sacrificial. <laughs> the goat. <laughs> okay. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so here we go. The myth of the sacrificial son is recapitulated here with great economy. The slaughtered goat reminds us both of the surrogate killed for Isaac and of the goat skins and meat by which Jacob symbolically supplanted his brother and gained his father's blessing. Yes. He takes, he puts on Esau's coat and puts goat 
skin and hair on his arms, Jacob does, to fool his father into believing something that isn't true. What happens here? The brothers do the same thing to Jacob. They take the coat, they dip it in goat, and bring it to their father to fool him into believing something that is not true. Karma. Call out for the fact that it was the same people that wrote both these stories. <laughs> of course, and, and that they're connected, right? But but this is the beauty that people often miss, I think, in Torah. This is the beauty that you all have access to now. Right? Oh, goat, right, right? Goat, of course it has to be a goat, because that's what he used to fool Jacob, and now it's being used to fool Jacob, right? So... I mean, Jacob used it to fool, and now it's being used to make him a fool, right? And so it's the beauty of Torah and the intricacy of the authorship that we read right over most of the time. All right. Like all great literature, right? This is, it's great because it's well done. Um, What gives this turn of events, drop all the way down to the bottom paragraph, what gives this turn of events its particular edge, of course, is that it comes at the hands of his brothers, Joseph is spared death, but he is not spared a glimpse into the heart of his closest kin. From his desolation in the pit, Joseph has overheard his brothers plotting against his life. He knows their hearts. He feels their sadism. Their hate is naked and murderous. He is able to their cane. He is stripped, not merely of his cloak of favoritism, but of all his illusions as well. This is the pit, the dry well, the depths. And this is not the last time he will know this place. Joseph descends into the pit for the first time. It is that first occasion of being betrayed by life, by fate, by people closest to us. That first horrible glimpse into the black heart of evil. Um, And... This is not the first time, as Peter Priscilla says, that he will know this place. He will be thrown in, right, in prison. He will be left in prison, right? Things do not go easily for Joseph. But this is absolutely an important part of our sacred mythology. The the descent into the pit is absolutely necessary. It It has to happen for transformation to happen on the other side. You cannot have someone become someone different and live into their you know potential in a different way without this moment of disillusionment with how it's been who this radical break with who I understood myself to be and who I understood the people around me to be and what I understood the rules to be right reality breaks for Yosef in this moment we all know these moments if we've grown at all right people who don't have these moments are not people you want to have dinner with. They tend not to have grown very much. We, we have to know the pit in order to change and become something different on the other side. So I'll let you read Peter Pitzula at home. He has this uh, wonderful thing where he discloses about his own experience with depression and moments you know, in his life that are these moments at the bottom um, of the pit. And uh, Rabbi... Rami Shapiro, he says, both the folktale, right, we've been talking about how this is a kind of folktale, and the Torah are telling us 
that the search is inevitable, but the prize is back where we started. It is because Joseph did not make peace with his brothers at home that he is estranged from them and threatened by them in the fields. When he's finally reconciled with them, he brings them into his home, once again creating a single household. He moves full circle, and yet there is progress. Judaism sees life not as a cycle endlessly repeating, but as a spiral turning yet moving forward with each rotation. So we seek. But the seeking is ultimately for its own sake. It is through the act of seeking that we mature. And when we are fully grown, we discover that all we need, we already have. And we come home. (coughs) To value the search for its own sake is to live with expectation. Each moment is an adventure. Where will it lead? How will I handle what I meet? Chance it and see. The seeking is all there is. Forget about finding. Finding is expectations. Seeking is expectations. It is a subtle difference, but an important one. Wherever you imagine you have found it, remember that you have never lost it. Indeed, you are it. And uh, before we make our Amish I will close the word with the prayer of the poet Ruth Bren, Parshat Vayeshev. Joseph strutted before his brothers wearing his gaily colored coat, the garment of a prince, and the sign of his father's favor. Yet three times would Joseph go down into the pit, the dry well where his brothers threw him, the abyss of slavery, and the black hole of prison. Three times Joseph would know suffering, despair, and his own helplessness, and three times he would call to God from the depths. Only after he had understood himself, only after he had served faithfully and well, only after he had pondered the dreams of others were his own dreams fulfilled. When he met his brothers again, he was no vain lad, but a ruler of Egypt, reaching toward them with compassion. O God of all generations, you know the human soul from pits dug for us by enemies and friends and by ourselves. We cry out to you. We pray to grow as Joseph grew from vanity to kindness, from folly to wisdom, from childness to maturity, childishness to maturity. Oh, keep us from praying for favors we have not earned or for the bright garments of easy privilege. Send us hope when we go down to the inevitable pits. Send us your help when we recognize our own helplessness. The poet Ruth Brin of Blessed Memory, a northern Minnesota poet, who uh, has a book called Harvest, published by a former congregant in Duluth, um, Holy Cow Press. So, um, And it's got all of her Jewish poetry uh, in it. So there's a poem for every... Parsha, uh, as well as for the seasons of the year, right, for different holidays, and and some that are just beautiful about her grandmother, and um, so it's all her Jewish poetry collected in this work called Harvest. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.